Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Jamie Bartlett, a tech writer, podcaster, and presenter of The Secrets of Silicon Valley, a documentary which looks at how Silicon Valley operates, including the collection and brokerage of our data by big tech firms, and we discuss how this may influence our future. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media at Peter McCormack and you can share it out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good morning, Jamie. Morning. How you doing? Welcome. Yeah, good. Not too bad. Pretty good. It's uh, it's strange hearing your voice in person as I've been listening to you for the last two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Likewise, yes. It's less... I put the voice on a bit for the radio as well, so it's probably not quite my normal voice now. It's slightly different. What, what, yeah. What's your... Because uh, I put mine on, but slightly differently. How yeah. do you do yours differently? Well, the, the strange thing at the moment is I grew up in quite a normal part of North Kent, the Medway Towns, which is quite a sort of Thames Estuary accent, and then I really tried to make it sound better for the radio and the TV. And now I've written... For 10 years, I was trying to sound sort of slightly posher. And now I've realised it's probably better if you don't. The way the media is going, it's better if you've got a regional accent. Oh, right, so I'm, okay. I'm now thinking, oh, I should try and bring the old sort of Kent, North Kent accent back in a bit. You know what I mean? Beth, Bedford doesn't have an accent. Well, you <laughs> oh, can't, you're screwed then. I, I, I try to make mine just sound clearer. You know? Yeah. So one of the things, you know, I studied a lot of different people interviewing and, and read a lot about how people construct interviews and trying to have clarity in your voice and yeah. slow down. You're probably aware of yes, this. And, definitely. And I found my voice got a little bit posher. And not very Bedford, <laughs> but I, there's no region. Well, Bedford regional accent is just like a towny exit. Oh, yeah. oh, we've probably got what, the same mate? one actually. I can imagine we've got a similar sort of thing. What, yeah. Mate? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You want, yeah. you want a point? Yeah, yeah. but yeah. Um, when you're actually like recording the links when you're doing the TV or the radio, obviously the producer's sitting over you and they're like, no, you're, the end of the sentence is running off. You didn't finish the word properly. So they're sort of forcing you yeah. to say it all more clearly, and I get that. Yeah. Well, that's also a funny bit. when. So I have an intro and outro to my podcast, and this show will go to the engineer, and he'll barely edit it. He might take out a pause or a mistake or an um or an uh here or there, yeah. but he does it. But when I record my intro and outro, I've got a script, and I just make so many mistakes. <laughs> it's, it's so unnatural just to sit and record oh, yeah. to nothing. So yeah. uh, Anyway, great to get you on. Uh, Big fan of your work. Know obviously about two pieces of your work that I didn't realise they were connected, and I obviously watched the the doc, two part documentary for the BBC a while back. 
And quite interestingly, watching it again over the last two days is I've obviously, you know, I interviewed Brittany Kaiser. Yeah, and I listened. I'm actually wondering where you fit into the timeline of this because it feels, tell, correct me on the timeline mm. if I'm right or wrong, but it feels like you were starting to uncover what was happening before it was fully, before the scandal fully came out in the press. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, I'm trying to, I'm, years start blurring together in my yeah. life, but it was it, the secrets of Silicon Valley. Part one was about AI disruption, you know, the future of employment, that kind of thing. And then part two was all about Cambridge Analytica, Facebook and Donald Trump. And we started working on that in very early 2017. And so that's how I ended up going to Trump, you know, Trump's digital headquarters in San Antonio, Texas, interviewing Alexander Nix, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica. And it all came out in late 2017. Is that okay. right? Oh, that is right, isn't it? That is I'm a- losing track of time. That is right. And that was, there were a few little articles about it. Wired did a really interesting thing about, about Cambridge Analytica just before our show came out. But the big sort of the big exclusives, the big stories from the Guardian, that was last year. Mm-hmm. So that was a sort of a quite. Was it that last year? Yeah, that was last year. Yeah, yeah that was su- that was some way after our show had come out, and maybe we'll get to the detail. But there was one bit of the story we didn't cover for various reasons, which was the use of the 87 million scraped data points from okay. Facebook, which didn't wasn't in our show. I, we, I knew about it. But, well, well, we'll come to it. But well, I, was a bit, I was a bit disappointed about how little coverage it actually got when it came out because I felt like we were onto a huge story here. But, um, but it, it wasn't your land. story. Well, it's the BBC's... Yeah, it was the BBC's... And it wasn't my personal story, no. Yeah. But I feel like... Um, it didn't somehow quite connect with people. You know, people enjoyed the show, but it didn't make, it didn't sort of, fireworks didn't go off. And I, we tr- I tried to get it sold into the US because I thought it was very US-centric, US-relevant. Not one American TV cable or whatever was interested in showing it. Well, okay, so there's loads we can get into here. And one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about it, because obviously it was a two-part series, it's funny how you remember things differently. I remembered it not as the secrets of Silicon Valley, in my head, I remembered it as the dark side of Silicon Valley. And I don't know why that was in my head. I thought that was the title, but it was. And it's only when I went back and I thought, oh, yeah, no, it's the secrets of Silicon Valley. And the other thing I'd forgotten, because it was a while ago I saw it, was it actually, whilst it was a two-parter, it's almost two quite se- separate Totally films. separate. And you had you connected them at the end. But the thing I wanted to ask you, because we talked before this about filmmaking and you know, I've got an interest in getting into it, one of the people said to me is that you can't plan too much ahead because the story sometimes finds itself. Yeah. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, no one's ever asked me that question before, but that's exactly what happened. So originally, episode one, it was it was all about it was about Uber, Uber in India, AI, driverless trucks, what it would mean for middle class Americans in particular, how the kind of the promise and dream of this disruption was actually causing lots of problems. But it was really, it was about AI and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about elections. And halfway through doing it, we're thinking, we, we need politics in this a little bit. We need a political part of the story. So we'd already done quite a few of the interviews for episode one. And then I think, I think it was actually me who said to the, the team, this thing weird about Facebook and Trump and 
I think I'd read the Wired article about it and I was like, there's something really odd here. It's really interesting. Do you think we could make episode two actually all about politics and Facebook and, you know, digital campaigning? Because it feels like something is, something's afoot. And we sort of changed direction a little bit because originally that hadn't been the plan. It was going to be two mm-hmm. episodes on, on the AI disruption. And so, yeah, it was quite a late decision. And then we scrambled around and you must have this where you don't think someone's going to reply and agree to be interviewed. And then they do. And you're like, why are you even speaking to me? I don't understand yep. why. What's in it for you? But the, this woman called Teresa Hong sort of really held it all together. She was the woman who was the head of co- digital content for Trump during the 2016 election and who worked very, very closely with Cambridge Analytica. A kind of hopeful email to see if she'd speak to us. And she replied saying, yeah, fine. I mean, I'm in San Antonio, Texas, but if you come here, I'll interview you in the building where we work together with Facebook, Google, and Cambridge Analytica with, for the Trump team. Why, why, though? Do you think some people feel like they, they're feeling guilty, they want to get something off their chest, or they don't know really comprehend what you want to interview them I about? I don't think she fully understood what right. she'd done, because back then the story wasn't very big. And after the show went out, she kind of went under the radar. But someone gave me some really good advice once about interviewing people and finding the right people to interview. People at the very, very top of an organisation have the PR team and, you know, they're very protected. People at the bottom aren't necessarily knowledgeable enough about what's really going on Mm -hmm. or they won't be taken seriously. If you can find a middle manager, they've got that credibility, but they don't have all the PR comms people in the way. And it's always a good way into a company is to go to go middle manager, which is kind of what she was. She was head of digital content, but mm. she wasn't the big boss. She wasn't, you know, Kushner or Brad Pascal, who was running the digital operations. And, um, and it's very revealing what she was telling I you. I couldn't believe... Uh, another thing that was so strange about that is we walk in and we... You know, when you're making a TV show, is you're preparing your questions in advance and you're like, well, I wonder if she'll cover this or she'll... You know, do you think we'll be able to get her to talk about you know the role of Cambridge Analytica in all this or do you think she'll be secretive how do we get into that and we walk in and she like splurges her gut she just says everything almost in the first five minutes and I'm sort of looking over at the producer thinking I can't believe she's telling me all this she's like Facebook sitting over there and they were helping make sure we could they were amazing we wouldn't have won the election without Facebook and all of this stuff and I'm thinking these are dream lines for a TV person you know But um, the other thing that's interesting, especially with like freelancers today, so many people work for companies on a freelance basis. You know, they come in Mm -hmm. as consultants, which is what she did. And then they leave again and they've got to make money. I think Teresa Hong was thinking, I can boost my profile because I now need another job working for another campaign. And this is a good way. So she was trying to, I think she was trying to impress us so she'd impress the viewers about all these amazing things they did, not realizing that. She's telling us some quite important stuff. Well, that bit, there's a very similar bit in The Great Hack where they talk about the I'm in that very, very briefly, right at the beginning. Are you? Yes, because right at the beginning where Professor Carroll is is talking about it and he's drawing his little whiteboard about how Cambridge... Oh, yeah, yeah. And then then there's a little scene about 30 seconds of me talking to Teresa Hong. Is that the bit? Ah, because when... (laughs) Okay, so I'll tell you what happened... The second time of watching it, the this part. So I watched part one a couple of nights ago. Part two, I say I watched it. I put it on in the car and just listened to it. 
Oh, yeah. So I can't actually watch it because I'm driving, but it plays it through the speakers. And when I was listening to this bit, I was like, oh, this is just like the bit that's in The Great Hack, where they talk about the room, where the people are in the room. Yeah, that that's, was it. Oh, ah, yeah, that I was it. They took that footage and okay. used it. Interesting. Yeah. So I'd love to know your thoughts on The Great Hack, because I don't... Th- I thought it was useful, but I don't think it was as good as a film as I want it to be. I thought there was almost too much on production. And also I thought the story about Britney was kind of misleading. Yeah. But there were other things that were very revealing. Do you, do, how did you feel about the final Yeah, you're, it's a similar thing to me, to be honest. I mean, it's hard for me to watch it because I did a similar thing to not the same level of critical acclaim or numbers. So uh, there's yeah. always tinged with jealousy when you're yeah. talking about a more successful, oh, my film's better than that. How could it? But had the same sort of feel it beautifully made i mean yeah. really, it's very very hard to make shows that are about digital stories and they're often hackneyed and ham-fisted and rubbish but well, they're like hollywood level production uh, amazing yeah, yeah really well put together i think that overall i think the the role that is attributed to cambridge analytica with its military grade psychographics is wrong i don't think it's true i think it's exaggerated doesn't mean I think it's not a problem. I think it's a big problem. Like the way that data is now being used in elections is a massive problem. But I don't think that Cambridge Analytica were particularly unique. I don't think they're particularly magical. I don't th- personally feel like she's an amazing whistleblower. I mean, she worked there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Certainly not up there with Edward Snowden or anyone like that, which is where sometimes her and Christopher Wiley are kind of placed. And it's like, yep. no, not, I mean, come on. So, so you know, yeah. A good, well, a good film, but I, I mean, I, I just have a different view on how important Cambridge Analytica is. I think they're really important because they tell us something about where elections are going. And I think we're all missing the point of the story of Cambridge Analytica and we're obsessing over it and we're accusing, you know, everything, democracy's been stolen and cheated. The real story for me is Cambridge Analytica is the beginning of how elections are going to look all over the world in 20 years' time. And we are only just beginning that. And we're not thinking about that. We're obsessing over psychographics, for example, this idea of personality profiling. I don't think it works. I just don't think it works at all. I don't think there's any evidence that it works. Okay. I think it will work one day, but I don't think it works now. And I don't think it was really important during the election in 2016. I really don't. Well, my main problem with the documentary is you've always got to think, how do you feel afterwards? And all I was thinking about was Brittany Kaiser. And then I think if you're doing that, they've they've made the wrong film hmm. because you really should be thinking about the story, about what's actually happened, the misuse of data. I mean, it was a scandal for me. Hmm. And I've got very different views on Britney than a lot of people. I actually quite like her after meeting her. I actually thought it was very misleading how involved they played she was. Hmm. I said to her, I even asked her, I said, I don't think you're a whistleblower. Do you think you are? And she does think she is, but I, I don't really think she is. I think she was just well, someone she, who was young, who got caught up in something. Yeah. Her career was flying. She suddenly... I think she said to you, I wasn't involved in the Trump thing at all. She said she was responsible for business development, but she said she wasn't actually in the room running the campaign. Yeah, which is kind of important. Yeah. There are other people that probably, I'm sure the great hack would have wanted to have gotten and couldn't. You make decisions when you're a TV person based on who's available and Mm. what they're doing, and you try and craft the story around a person. And there is, I I guess it's like, it's the same with a lot of TV shows. You've got a big story. You know on its own it's going to be boring, but it's really important. So you've got to play it through the story of a person. And so they obviously chose Dave Carroll, who's a great guy, really cool guy, and Brittany Kaiser, mm. and to tell their story, to put the bigger story out. 
And in that sense, I mean, they've really done an amazing job at getting the idea of this and the importance of data and elections out there. And so for that, I mean, I'm very grateful for what they've done. So we should go back to that question I said, the, the point I was raising, though, that in that the story finds itself right. And re-listening to it again this morning, I was like, God, you were just on the edge of uncovering this, how bad it was. It was almost like, it was almost like there was another 30 minutes of material. Like yeah. if you guys could have, could have gone deeper... It's almost like you could have fully exposed the scandal. What, what, what is the was, scandal, though? What do you think? The, what do you think the great scandal of Facebook and data in two thousand and sixteen election is? I think the, the main scandal is the misuse of data and us not knowing what it's being used for. What misuse of data? Our personal data. <laughs> yeah, on but Facebook. which bit? Because that's really important. Well, because so, that's the thing that's like what? What is the bit about that story that made it blow up in two thousand and eighteen when it okay. didn't in two thousand and seventeen? Well, so the most interesting part of the whole documentary for me, and the bit that really concerned me, and if it's true, is actually what happened in Trinidad. I agree, 100%. Yeah. That's why I thought the same thing. When yeah. I came out of that, like, uh, yeah. beyond Britain, 100%. I was like, fuck, they actually, the only way they could win an election was to manipulate people not to vote, to create apathy. Yeah. And that, for me, was... For me, I was starting to think, this is kind of virgin on evil. Voter suppression yeah. techniques. Yeah. And and this isn't right. This is this is a, this is controlling the population and controlling people to do things to get an outcome you want. Now, look, you can say that's all electioneering, yeah. and all electioneering has advertising, et cetera, et cetera. But that, for me, was kind of... That was really sinister. Yeah. Because you didn't know the intentions of what was happening yes. there. If that is true, that, to me, is a real scandal. That's I agree. That was the worst thing for me. And the way that Cambridge Analytica generally tested their techniques in developing world countries is a story that still hasn't fully been told. Mm -hmm. Not really. Not exactly what they did in Kenya, what they did in India. You get a bit of, even in The Great Hack, a bit of a decent flavour, but I think there's still a lot more to say about that. So, yeah, I, I mean, could we have gone deeper into that story? Um, At the time, what the, was your feeling? Do you, did you feel you were onto something? What, you were questioning it? I knew we were onto something, but basically what we'd done so it, is that we had... We had realised, obviously, that as a sort of general position, the Trump team had used huge amounts of personal data using this Cambridge Analytica team, possibly trying to use these psychographic techniques based on what at the time seemed like pretty unprecedented amount of profiling, but actually not a huge amount different from what the other campaigns are doing. And that Facebook and Google are in the room with the Donald Trump team doing very, very sophisticated micro-targeting. So to me, that was, a big, that was a big story because I think people needed to understand from the inside how do elections actually work today and not mm. just from Trump, everyone, which is what I think is so important about that story. The, the reason it took off in 2018 in the way that it did was not about what happened in Trinidad and Tobago. It was because 87 million data points were scraped by someone who then sold the data to Cambridge Analytica mm -hmm. without the permission of those users in 2014 or whenever it was. Yep. And then the figure was like, oh my God, everyone's data has been stolen from Facebook. And there was the dramatic by, pictures of, of the offices being... I yes. can't remember who went into the office. The, the ICO yeah. going into Cambridge Analytica's office. Taking their computers. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is bad. Yeah, now the reality is, I think you mentioned it in your interview with Brittany Kaiser, I mean, a lot of companies before 2016, 
basically, the way that Facebook worked with its app developers was to say, okay, you can only collect, you can't crawl our platform, you can only take data from users if you've got their express permission, and don't use your clever scrapers to go to, you know, to go around friends of friends to get their... That's unlucky, isn't it? Yeah. That's someone just doing some gardening out. So I wonder if that door... The good news is this, everyone has a tiny garden in this, in this road, so it can't last for more than about two minutes. <laughs> I wonder if it'll pick it up. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of app developers were doing that because Facebook said to people on their terms and conditions, and I'm sorry it's getting a bit technical, but... No, no, it's good. Said to their ter- on their terms and conditions, you're not allowed to scrape other people's data without permission. But they didn't restrict it, so you could do it. Loads of companies were like, well, if they're not actually going to stop it, you know, if we can technically do it, then let's just get all the data in. So Cambridge Analytica was one of lots and lots of companies mm-hmm. doing this. And I don't think that the data they collected was necessarily hugely important in terms of what they were doing. To me, what they were doing better than anyone else was leg- the legally acquired data that they had. This was what the story was always about for me, the mm-hmm. legal data they'd acquired buying it from data brokers, which is a massive industry that's still mostly unregulated and no one understands. You know, your magazine subscriptions, your mortgage repayment, what car do you drive, all the the publicly available data about your voting records that the parties hold and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And putting that all together to create an incredibly um, detailed profile on 250 million Americans and then just throwing millions of dollars at Facebook especially to do the most targeted adverts in particular key swing states better than Clinton had done better than Obama had done but the, to me what was interesting about that story is that was all legal that was legal stuff they were just using yeah. the platforms in the way they should and I wanted people to realize that legally our elections are changing mm-hmm. and they're no longer the model of how democracy should work and an election should work is being screwed up by all this our rules don't fit this anymore that to me was what was interesting the the, the 87 million acquired accounts and we knew about that we couldn't stand it up because we couldn't get anyone from the company to say yes we got 87 million mm. facebook but but people were very interested in that side of the story because that felt like data misuse which is what made the story explode Whereas I was interested in the legal acquisition of this data and what it meant for how our elections work, which I think is more important because we might be able to get rid of some of this illegal stuff and we're still left with a massive problem, which is that none of our rules work anymore. Okay, so Jamie, a really interesting thing for me is I used to work in digital advertising and I worked from pretty much the start of the internet when we were building websites and then banner ads came and then social media and email marketing came. And my main agency out in London was part of a bigger traditional agency who did TV, radio, print, advertising. And what was very interesting is you could see the way advertising was changing. It was going from an ad that would go to a group of people on the underground or in a magazine or whatever. It would be one ad, a broad ad that... Yeah. You know, all right, you might target it slightly because of the magazine you're in or the paper you're in. But generally speaking, they were broad ads. And then we suddenly had this thing called social media where we could customize the ads. Yeah. And you could see where it was going. Um, in no way did we think it was sinister. It was just as sad that the advertising was going to this... Hyper-personalized. Yeah, yeah. and I, I kind of lost interest in it. So when I look at politics, you know, politics has always been like a fine line between what is advertising and what is propaganda. Yeah. You know, it's always a message, whether it's a message on a bus or a billboard, the election's now going to social media. What I'm trying to separate is what is 
sinister and misuse and yes. what is fair game? Yes, yes, good question. Well, I got my view on that, yeah. which is that... So I think the rules that should govern how you receive election-based material should be different different from just when you're being sold jeans and T-shirts and stuff. I don't have a problem with hyper-personalised adverts. I mean, there may be a problem in 100 years' time, questions to do with free will and who's going to really... You know, is a machine going to know you better than you know yourself? How do we understand what free will means in that? Well, we start questioning our own judgment because advertisers know us extremely well and start... Yeah, and I can very well imagine that there's going to be a lot of grey areas where an automated advertising system works out that you're a manic depressive and you probably barely know it yourself and it knows exactly when you'll turn, when, when you'll have a down cycle and it will sell you things in that down cycle. And it might all be done by a machine as well. So a human won't even be involved in that process. And you could consider that to be extremely abusive and unethical, but no one will be held accountable for it because no one person can be sort of accused of being in charge of this system. And that's what I think is going to be the problem in 20 years' time. But more immediately, elections are supposed to be places where everyone knows what everyone else sees. We thrash out the issues of the day collectively. This is the idealised election. It's never quite like this, but everyone thrashes out the sort of subjects of the day. We have a common basis of information, which we then argue over, and that's where our opinions and stuff come in. Where elections are heading, using this perfectly customizable, targeted, and increasingly sort of highly personalized in maybe some quite sinister ways, is that it sort of throws all that out the window. And elections become about how can we find a niche group of people with very particular interests and almost irrelevant to what our political position is, how can we push their emotional buttons? And the reason why I find the Cambridge Analytica story the wrong one that we're being told is that all I think is, what's an election going to be like in 20 years' time? See that fridge over there that I've got and that coffee machine that we've just been using? There are going to be data collectors, aren't they, in 20 years' time? Mm-hmm. And, they're going to, we're going to, and we're going to have, in 20 years' time, 40 years' worth of mine and your data is going to have been collected about us, including our diet, our caffeine intake, my smart home heater. And it will be able to work out more and more, not just things about me, but sort of time-specific things, it will be able to tell that I'm in a bad mood at that particular moment. And it will know that when I'm in a bad mood, I'm more open to candidates who are tough on law and order. And me and you, like, I will get a different advert to my neighbour and my neighbour will get a different advert to his wife. Every single one of us in 15 years' time will be receiving adverts that are tailored purely to us based on 30 or 40 years' worth of data Adverts that we don't really understand how they're made. They're probably going to be made by machines. How on earth do we run an election like that? We don't have no idea. And that's what Cambridge Analytica is, the start of something. It's not the culmination of something. It's just the start of of a a new approach to how we understand elections. And that's what worries me, because I think we're totally clueless about it. But one of the things that I do think about, which not a lot of people have looked into, is that in 20 years, will we have the delivery mechanism? So Facebook engagement is dropping. I just know, I mean, for myself personally, I barely use it anymore. It, yeah. it was a novelty when it first came out. Oh, look, we can yeah. put photos up and we're on a Saturday night and we can laugh and joke about it and we can like stuff. And then for one one reason or another, I just I just don't really use it. it doesn't matter whether it's Facebook. I, I imagine the adverts will be coming out of my fridge or but, they'll be coming out of my TV. And But it, it will still be based on huge amounts of data that has been collected by data brokers, not just mm. your Facebook posts, but all the other things you're spewing online all the time. See, I'm wondering 
if it will. And the reason I'm wondering if it will is because TV is moving, apart from live sports, TV is actually moving away from the advertising model. It's a subscription model. Netflix, Disney, Apple TV, they're all moving away from advertising. Banner ads just don't work online. Will Facebook engagement drop? It is dropping now. Will people be using that in 20 years? Kind of what I'm wondering is if, if the... Without the delivery mechanism, yeah. do you have yeah, a yeah. problem? You know, you say you can have fr- adverts yeah. coming from your fridge, yeah. but really, I mean, yeah, if that, I, I don't think I would have that. I'll switch, <laughs> switch the fucking thing off. So I'm just, I'm wondering if this well, is unique to yeah. Facebook, and this might die with Facebook dying. Uh, interesting. I don't think so because I think okay. that the power of personalised content and how, and I think it will perform better and better. Because even if it's a subscription model on your TV, it's going to presumably still be more personalised to you rather than to everyone on your street, even if it's not then paid for by ads. Mm-hmm. So there'll still be mechanisms of more and more personalised content. And I think that it's that trend that worries me the most. More and more personalised content, whatever thing it's coming through, whatever the mechanism is, and I can't really predict it because I never would have thought smartphones would have been so important 20 years ago either. Have you seen I, this alternative model for privacy about obfuscation? Obf- I can always struggle to say the obfuscation, word. Obfuscation, maybe, yeah. yeah. Whereby, so there's, there's, for example, I think there's a widget you can get for your Google browser, yeah, yeah. which is constantly yeah. doing weird searches. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, this is the thing. This is why I wrote this book. So after that, I did the TV show. I wrote a book about all of this stuff. Yeah. And there were t- things I was suggesting that people did to help safeguard their privacy and do something against the mass collection of data. And one of them is that, yeah, you could have a plug-in to do it for you, or you could just start randomly liking different things to try to confuse the data models. And I think all of those things are important jobs as citizens, like as democratic citizens, you've got to do it. Because I suppose the way of... the way I, I, I don't know exactly if it's the fridge will be the delivery mechanism or the TV, or I can't imagine these things are going to... The smartphones are going to really disappear. They're too uh-huh. useful. Yeah. All of this stuff is too useful. None of it's a criticism about the tech in a way because it's the reason it's damaging is because it's so amazing. Like I love it. And it you say that. I've bought a new phone. I like I've got my iPhone here, but I it's like a Kickstarter or GoFundMe, the light phone. Have you seen it? I haven't. <laughs> I mean it's stupid because I've spent three hundred fifty dollars on it. But so this phone, all it does is text, call, alarm, book a taxi, yeah, listen to music. That's yeah, it. there's no apps, there's no comms apart from text and things, and I want that because I want to get away. It's like in yeah, your yeah. documentary, was it 117 times in a day, five <laughs> and a half hours? Yeah. I want to get away yeah. from. Yeah, that. no, me too, me too, me too. I mean, I, and I and I agree, but I'm, what I'm saying is that that for a lot of people, it's very, very useful, very convenient. There's this thing that researchers talk about called the I think it's something like the the, the privacy gap or something mm-hmm. everyone says it's really important to me i really care about my data i'm really concerned and then they just carry on but they just carry on doing what they've always been doing which is getting free stuff in exchange for giving their information away mm. and it's it's hard to see how how to turn that back entirely see what i think might happen in the next 20 years or so is there'll be a new sort of inequality emerging because data is so valuable that it's clear to me that all the household products that are increasingly going to become smart are going to become cheaper than the ones that are going to be non-smart because the companies will want your data so they'll give you reductions on having a smart fridge. And if you want a smeg, an expensive smeg fridge that's non-smart, it's going to have to be 10 years old. And all the middle classes will buy it 
because they'll say, oh, I don't want my, you know, my child isn't going to be monitored by my fridge and I'm going to get an old, but it's going to be much more expensive and poorer people just won't be able to afford the privacy premium that will come with, with buying a £350 old phone, essentially, that doesn't do all this stuff. So you could have this weird new inequality forming between poorer people who are much more targeted by everything, more data about them and more, you know, more predatory algorithms that understand them even better and then richer people who pay to not have all of that stuff happening. That will mm. throw up another problem. Like recently Simon Cowell said he's given up his smartphone and he feels great, he feels amazing about it. I mean, it's completely ridiculous because all he's done is he's, re- he's replaced the apps with people. Yeah, people. It's just, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> my dr- I don't need Uber because my driver's waiting outside and I yep. don't need... Deliveroo, because my chef will just make it for me. And well, I can't afford to do all of that stuff. So I can see that as the beginnings of a sort of weird new divide in society. But I guess what I'm saying is you might be right about the delivery mechanisms. We maybe move to a subscription model on more stuff. That will be, I, I'd hope that's true. I'm not sure that's true. But what I'm saying is the risk of Cambridge Analytica to me is actually about what happens in 10 years' time and 15 years' time. And even this election compared to just obsessing over 2016 where it's not really clear how well some of their techniques actually worked. Yeah. Because it's one of the things that I think is happening is everyone's accusing everyone else of cheating all the time because people have a sense that the rules aren't working. I guarantee in this election, I don't know if this is going to come out before the election or not, but one of the things that will keep happening is people will be digging up adverts on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, wherever the ads are appearing, and saying, look, this is a lie. Mm-hmm. You're lying. These adverts are lies and you've targeted these people. And then the h- journalists will blow it out of all proportion because they love those stories at the moment. And all it will do is just decrease confidence in the fact that a result's legitimate. Well, it happened the other day with a Good Morning interview, didn't it? I can't try and remember who it was. Oh, it was James Cleverly. Yeah. Was it, was it, was it the one where he... They, they recut the ad, yeah, yeah. The, the interview, to say he wouldn't give a straight answer on... Oh, it was Keir Starmer, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was Keir Starmer saying, what's your Labour's position yeah. on Brexit or something like that? And it was a, a long pause. Yeah, and they recut it. And, I mean... I was it that bad, really, what no. they did? I mean, I mean yes and for, no. It was just for effect, wasn't it? But I it mean, was misleading. It was misleading. Yeah. Because I saw that and I was like, oh, you know, I came to a judgment just based on that one clip seen on Twitter... Then I was in the, listening to Radio 5 on the way in, I heard the interview, and they were actually saying that it's been recut in a really misleading way. So I had to go back and watch the whole thing yeah. and say, actually, that was misleading. And this is it. This is like this constant battle of propaganda yeah. and misinformation yeah. being thrown at us. Actually, I've become really apathetic to the whole thing. But you see, I think that is what is going on here. Yeah. See, the way I see it is we had an old way that elections were run. And we kind of knew the rules and maybe yep. we weren't happy with it and it wasn't perfect, but we sort of respected the results because we understood how the game was played. And suddenly, all this new technology turns up. The old rules haven't changed. And so everyone's getting apathetic, actually. Like, I don't trust anything. It's well, all a load of rubbish. Or angry. Apathetic or angry, but, yeah. but both are bad for yeah. different reasons, aren't they? Yeah. And it's like, and I think, I think apathy might become... Well, maybe you're right. It's going to be any. It's going to be sort of both because some people are like, I don't trust anything. I don't trust anyone. All content is pot- potentially fakeable mm-hmm. because it's very easy to manipulate videos now. So I don't trust anything I ever see. Or angry. Or angry. I'm furious about these lies, these cheaters, and so on. And then politics is reduced to nothing more than emotion because mm-hmm. facts are irrelevant and everything's emotional and. And that's what I think is happening with politics today. I see the emotion in politics as a direct result of 
digital technology. I mean, it's, politics has always been emotional, but it's been supercharged by, by all these things that are going on and a sort of feeling... And 24-hour news media has changed it a lot as well. And news media, especially out in the US, becoming very political itself. You know, the rise of Fox News and then Fox News versus MSNBC. Yeah. Where if you, if, you, if you hear of something, say, with regards to the Trump impeachment, you can read it on Fox News and MSNBC yeah. and you read two different versions of the events. You do, Because yeah. they're both driving an agenda to support their... Advertisers, and that itself is becoming like. Yeah, but you see two versions, yeah. right? That's true. But we're moving into an era where we're gonna. There's hundreds of versions, and yeah. I, I sort of think one of the reasons. I mean, my analysis of all of this is it's based on old writers like Marshall McLuhan, who 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 wrote about the global village and the electronic revolution in the '60s and how that was going to change politics and it would make politics more emotional, is what he said, because TV is an emotional medium, mm-hmm. whereas reading. It's a kind of thoughtful medium. And he's probably exaggerating that a little bit. But I I see that. That's how I I, I think the biggest problem of all is information overload, Mm -hmm. which is there's too much. There's too much information. We can't deal with it. And we're getting more and more and more of it. And it's going to inevitably comes more and more personalized because otherwise you're just lost at sea, surrounded by, you know, constant... I mean, you must feel it when you go online and you you walk away feeling less informed than when you signed on. Yeah, well, like, I also, I wake up in the morning, I've got numerous alerts from every single app and, and then I go online, I've got to deal with emails and such. But as I said, I'm actually... I don't know if the, the Simon Carroll thing actually will reflect a, a change in society. You know, screen time appearing and being put on your phone by Apple is actually a reflection of people, right? There's a demand mm. for people to know what they're spending their time yeah. on. There's a demand for me to know what my children are spending their time on. You know, when we go out for dinner now as a family, we all leave our phones at home. That's new, but we yeah. went out to dinner and we're all on our phone. I was like, this is ridiculous. We leave our phones at home. It's getting to the point now whereby... It's going to be when we come home at the end of the day, the phones are going in a cupboard. Yeah. I said to you, I bought this new phone because I want to get away. I want to detach from it. But I think there's a few other things. I also think I'm quite interested in this obfuscation technique for protecting data because I tried to switch off everything Google and actually it became shit. I remember I was in San Francisco (laughs) and I was trying to find a restaurant and I had to switch on location because it didn't know where I was. Yeah. But I like the obfuscation. I think Apple or some companies like Apple making privacy central to what they do yeah. is really yeah. important. It is. So I think I think technology could also solve this. If it reflects yes. if people kind of if people yes. are actually saying that oh, I've got a problem with this, someone like Apple, they actually have an incentive to solve this yes. for you. No, I agree hundred percent. I I mean it's not impossible that we can turn these things around. Like mm-hmm. The book I wrote about this was saying we, technology can solve some of these problems if, if we decide and we demand and we change our behaviour. I think the risk is every year that goes on, it's a bit like climate change, it gets slightly harder to do because the technology becomes more and more central to our lives. Like you say, it becomes harder to go to a restaurant, it becomes harder to do your job without being logged in all the time. And convenience is such a powerful driver of human behaviour, mm-hmm. you know, the least difficult option, that the more and more integrated it becomes. So when my whole smart house is all connected up, it's just a lot harder for me to be able to then switch off or take these measures to make sure I'm not logged on all the time. And it's going to be the same with something like driverless cars. You know, if driverless cars turn up, every passing year will get harder and harder to not have one because all the systems around it will be built 
around the assumption that people are moving to driverless cars. Well, so the road yeah. signs will start disappearing and all of that stuff because who needs a road sign when you're in a driverless car? And then it's harder for a normal car to be used on the road. And will so, it become illegal to drive well, because it becomes dangerous? Presumably it will become illegal at some point, yeah, because, I mean, a single network would be a much safer way of doing it. But And so and the same is true of all of it. And this is why it feels a bit like climate. I don't know your views on climate change, but let's, I mean... Hmm. But well, you get interesting views in the world of Bitcoin <laughs> yeah. because well, I believe it's happening. I believe it's human cause, but a lot of Bitcoiners fight it and say yeah. this is propaganda and it's being misused. Centralized systems. Yeah, yeah. it's being used to drive yeah. an agenda to support in, uh, incentives for green technologies. You know, climate's been changing. I, I fundamentally believe climate's changing is because of humans. Yeah, I fundamentally okay. believe that. But I mean, but but even if you didn't, I mean, the, the idea that every every passing year it gets harder to yep. unplug and harder to change your behaviour because the convenience of it gets better and better and better and more useful. Like the idea now, frankly, imagine trying to live your life fully unconnected now. So going back to old maps, physical maps, it'll be hard to buy a physical map because well, do, you don't yeah. sell them anymore. So yeah. my point is that I agree with you. Like We can turn all this around, but I think it's a bit of a race against time before it just gets harder and harder to do it. Well, it's like that point. Do you remember, you know, your similar age to me. So when you were like 15, 16, do you remember when you used to have to go meet one of your mates? You had to be on time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Because if you course. weren't on time, yeah. they wouldn't know where the fuck you were. Whereas we just, you know, I can text you. I'm 20 minutes late, and everyone's become about a bit casual about yeah. yeah, arrival on time. Actually, really yeah. pisses me off. But you see, I think this is a cultural shift, though, and I think yeah. this is really important, and, and and it's more important than Cambridge Analytica. All of this stuff mm-hmm. to me, and it's good that Cambridge Analytica story has has sort of put the question of data into the heart of politics, so people are thinking about it, and mm-hmm. I hope they're now thinking this is more than just data is being manipulated. It's like, what norms are we creating about behaviour now? What do we expect of politics? More important than Cambridge Analytica to me is the fact that everyone's attention span is decreasing quite sharply because mm-hmm. they're checking things all the time. How can you be a good citizen if you cannot read something for more than half an hour without having to check your bloody phone? Yep. And how can you be an informed citizen You know, who thinks carefully about who to vote for, what causes to give to? You know, and... and that to me is driving political polarization more than sinister Cambridge Analytica using your data to manipulate you with military grade psychographics, which I don't even know what military grade psychographics even means. And what is but, the role of politics though as well into that? Just just to throw it in, is politics about serving the people or is it about someone's career hmm. and about uh, achieving power? Yeah. And therefore, do like, because I go back to the Trump thing and they bombarded with ads. Are these the things they believe in that they that they want to make a better world for their voters, for the electorate, or is it is it just about winning now? I mean, you're outside my range of expertise now. But, I mean, it, but, this but could, it just feels about winning now, yeah. that's, and that's why I think everyone's fighting yeah. and arguing because it's now it's just about winning and we're right, you're wrong. Let's fight. Well, yeah, yeah, it feels like that. I mean, it feels like politics has become a much more like a sport and sports become much more political as well. Mm-hmm. But become a lot more like a sport where you take a side. And it's your side to the death and your opponents are evil and they're wrong and they're dangerous and everything's existential because the other side is... And that to me, again, is partly, not entirely, it's partly a product of our information environment. Mm -hmm. So maybe that makes me a techno-determinist. I'm not saying that um, 
this is brand new. Humans have always been motivated by these things. I just think it's been turbocharged and monetized at an industrial scale by the way our information infrastructure has been set up unintentionally. Yeah. I don't, I'm not blaming people for it. It's just, I think it, you can see in the style of politics we have, I think, a direct reflection of the way our technology's been designed. And, but it, it is about the expectation. So I think one of the, you, you mentioned about going to see your mates and you had to be on time and you say, oh, let's meet down the Pentagon Centre, which is where I lived. Let's meet down the Pentagon Centre. It wouldn't even be, it would be like you'd arrange it on Friday to meet on Saturday morning. Yeah. You? <laughs> but it, but it, I think those sorts of things create an expectation of behaviour. Like what mm-hmm. do you expect of things and people and systems? And I always give the example of boots and getting your photos developed. So you'll remember the hassle, yeah. the rigmarole, the price, yep. the inadequacy. I also remember the excitement, though. The do thrill you remember of it. actually oh, yeah. getting your yeah. photos. Nearly always disappointed, though, because yeah. if you got one good photo, you'd be buzzing. Because you could retake it over and over. <laughs> but, but the excitement of getting it and like, right, get home, we're open. And you'll, it was like a thing you go through. Photos have kind of. It's just sort of. And, uh, they're just meaningless now because they're all they're filtered, they're endless, they're yep. free to send, they're free to take, they're free to, to, to redo. So everyone curates their own existence perfectly and then presents it. And so to me, like the world of politics is still stuck in the model of boots, really. I mean, because, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't get what you wanted and it wasn't right. And I think when you got your photos developed that way and politics worked that way, you kind of understood it. So I know this is going to sound like a weird analogy, but well, I didn't quite get what I voted for, but I didn't get all the photos I wanted at Boots either. Mm-hmm. Sort of makes sense that this is how the world works. It's compromised, it's slow, it's imperfect. As a consumer now, it's like everything is as I want, when I want, redone, re-edited, re-filtered, personalised to me with total control, and politics is still going to Boots. And I think that's, and people that's have got the this expecta- expectation. Yeah, yeah, the expectation is changing, which I think drives the anger. I want the government to serve me as the yeah. individual for this one thing that I have. And if you don't... Like, you're fuck evil and you're else. stupid yeah. and you're wrong. And how could you? And I don't trust you anymore. And, and that's, I think, where our, our, our behavioural norms driven by technology are going to start really impacting on politics because politics no longer reflects how we live our lives as a consumer. Does that make sense? No, and, it does. And I see that as much bigger than Cambridge Analytica. Well, then we go full circle back to the original starting point of the documentary, which is actually it's about Silicon Valley itself and technology and what the role the technology it plays. Because this is all technology. Yeah. This, is, this isn't just Cambridge Analytica. This isn't just Facebook. You know, Facebook wouldn't be what it is without our mobile phones, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's all these different technologies that have come into play. And I, there was a lots of other parts, by the way, of that documentary I, I, I found really, really interesting. And, that, and, and I'm going to segue here a bit because I don't want to miss out on an observation I had. And I think this is why I thought it was the dark side of Silicon Valley. I think that was, by the way, maybe a subtitle was about the darker side. Ah, of was it? Yeah, I think that might be where you got it. But yeah. that's, that to me yeah. was a title, and I think this yeah. is why. Okay. There was a bit where they talked about the most invested company in Silicon Valley was Uber. Okay? 15 billion or something yeah. or other. And they went out to, was it Calcutta? Uh, Hyderabad, Hyderabad is where well, I was, yeah, in India, yeah. And they, you know, they went out there with all the promises. What I realized is that they can create companies in these locations 
which at first seemed great, to kind of take over and dominate the market. But they can do that and run out of a loss because they've got so much money invested in them that the important thing is growth. Once yeah. they need to hit profit, then they can squeeze the people already tied in. I think that's why yeah. I felt it was the dark side. It's yeah. because there's so much money now coming in from venture capital is that you can destroy businesses because you can afford to run at to a loss. subsidise. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or to cross-subsidise certain things. So if you're a company that owns lots of different things, you can run at a massive loss, destroy, destroy the local market, and then squeeze when you're in a monopolistic or near-monopolistic position or duopolistic or whatever. And I think that's what, I mean, I, I believe, I hope I don't get sued for this, but I believe Starbucks was accused of cluster bombing companies. Like they would they open would several companies around local coffee shops. They'd triangulate them. Yeah, yeah, and so they'd destroy them and then they could, you know, and then they had the market to themselves. It's a sort of yeah. weird version of that, I suppose. So, so lots of that happened. Subway did the same. Yeah. Um, and so what they would do is, yeah, they would, they would open three in a town, they would triangulate, so... Yeah. And and once they've got to the point where they've um, the uh, local businesses have closed down, they will close one. I've literally yeah. watched this just happen in Bedford. Oh right, we right, had we right. had three subways open. Two of them were on our high street, either ends of the high yeah. street. One's just closed down now. Yeah, and I've watched it happen, and it's kind of sinister. And but I also get into this weird world. So it's so easy though with with, with the app based companies like yeah. Uber. It's so easy to start up somewhere. You don't need all the phys- to the same extent. You don't need all the physical buildings. You know, you can turn up somewhere, and because of the sort of network effects, you have this sudden exponential growth. You know, more drivers means more data means better data, which means more drivers, which means more data and kind of feeds itself and grows very, very quickly. So you turn up, Uber turns up, and then six months later, they've like you know, an entire market they all, almost own. I mean, the, the good thing I think at the moment, though, is that the regulator, even since I made that, I think the regulators in these places are getting more and more worried about it and are definitely clamping down more. Well, this is where I get stuck. And this is because you're anti rate, you're quite well, so libertarian I, on yeah, that. Yeah, so I yeah. quite like a lot of what libertarians talk about. I, I am, but I, yeah. but I also can't fully, especially the full anarchist libertarians, I can't yeah. fully picture their world. I just can't see yeah. it. I can't see a world where there's no regulation. We can, everyone can have any weapon they want, and the market, the free market will sort itself out and we'll live in a more respectful, law abiding society. I feel like, no, we're going to we go a bit more Wild West. And there is such an imbalance with money that I just, I just struggle with it because I think without some form of regulation, you do have people that take advantage, and that does lead to the the loss of lives. I've just interviewed Pete Patterson from the Guardian about what's going on with the Qatar World Cup. There's a show that's being released released today. There are no regulations about the treatment of migrant workers, pretty much through most of the Gulf. And the the death rates are ridiculously high. I mean, it's something like up to four thousand people might die in the construction of the twenty twenty two World Cup. I mean, that's completely unacceptable for me. Sorry, twenty twenty World yeah. Cup. Yeah, you see, if you're thinking about sort of classic liberalism and people like that term has become really a bit debased. You know, everyone likes to call themselves a classic liberal now, and it's sort of nice cover for all sorts of ideas. Mm. But I could probably consider that's the closest thing to me. I've always felt like the purpose of government is to create roughly an even playing field so a free an actual free market can operate because like if you allow a free market to operate and it creates massive monopoly it's not really a free market anymore because you don't have any competition so what's the point in that where's the free market in a free market that leads within six months to a monopoly yeah and you know rent seeking behavior so the 
you, I think you always, if you care about free markets, you shouldn't always be anti-regulation. You should always be thinking, can we build a regulation that allows for genuine new competition, newcomers? Because I, I also think free markets are the best way of encouraging growth and personal freedom and all of those things. The problem, of course, is that the minute you get the regulation in, regulation starts serving itself, bureaucracies start forming, they get bigger and bigger, yeah. they start engaging in rent-seeking behaviour as well. And so you end up with this tussle, and that's where I think, that's where I end up, being wary of what happens when you do put in the regulation to help a free market, because it always, and I just see, you just have this pendulum effect in society where it's sort of... <laughs> left and right. Yeah, you right, overdo yeah. it a bit, and then you swing back a little bit, and it's totally imperfect, but... Um, and Trump and, and Brexit is a reflection <laughs> of going too left and... Well, they, and they feed off each other, don't they, as well? Yeah. They feed off each other. So what kind of yeah. conclusions did you come to with the the, the two-parter? Because... I think it's very easy to look at Silicon Valley. Sometimes yeah. it's very, very evil and yeah. boo, boo, boo. Yeah. But also, there have been some amazing innovations that have come out of it. Yeah. And some of it is life improving. You know, there's certain things to do with your phone that will support your health and improve your health. It's not all bad. But where did you kind of. Yeah, I finish? agree. I agree. It's very, and we, I'm also, even myself, getting a little bit. I've stopped doing it, stopped writing the complaint about big tech. And I can't read another book that's slagging off big tech. I mean, it's just boring. Mm. And it feels like it's all been said. The only place I wanted to get to was a slight rebalancing of the scales. Uh -huh. So people were a bit more annoyed about what's been going on. They're a bit more worried about it. Regulators are a bit more interested in what's happening. And, they, and it nudges a little bit back in their favor. That was it. I didn't think, oh, you know, tear these companies down, break up Facebook, do this and that. I was just thinking a realistic goal with this and the book I wrote about it was, well, if you can get a few more people being worried about it and making a few moves about, you know, enhancing their privacy, downloading a Tor browser, you know, increasing all of the privacy settings they have, the GDPR rules about data protection, maybe actually trying to use some of that. Because I think this GDPR, which is, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the data protection stuff that's come out, there's some potentially really interesting things that could encourage more competition. Like you've got data portability. You can ask companies to give your data back and then give it to other companies. And I can imagine a, a world in which people ask other companies to get their data back for them and then sell it for them, take a cut of the profit, and that could help other companies to start up to compete with the big boys. And because we want more competition, if we believe in free markets, we want more competition with these big companies. Because what I worry about in the long run is monopolies that are far bigger than the ones we have at the moment. Because if you think about artificial intelligence as a sort of general purpose technology that mm -hmm. could be used in almost any industry, and the more data you get and the more compute power you get and the more people you get, the better you'll be at that. What is stopping Google with dominating almost every industry imaginable? If everything's going to become data-enabled and AI-driven, you could have a monopoly that's way bigger than anything we see now. And that's what worries me. What, what's, what, where are we heading on yeah. the current trajectory? And it's not towards an amazing free market at all. So to me, it was about raising a little bit of awareness, a few more things where people would be a bit more cautious, interested, you know, understanding that data and privacy is part of being a citizen. To me, it's as important that you focus on uh, your, what's happening with your data as you would whether you'd vote I don't vote in an election because I think it's going to make a difference in this constituency. I vote because I feel like it's a duty and, you know, we should have a higher turnout so the, so the bastards know we're watching them. 
It's the same with data. I feel data is also a duty as a citizen to think about, mm-hmm. consider where is it, who's got it, what do I do with it, can I get it back? So that was all it was, to nudge the scales a tiny bit. The AI thing is actually very interesting. Um, I think it would be a good area to close out on because it's almost, like you say, thinking 20 years ahead. There are very different kind of views on how this will pan out. There is the very scary Terminator 2 yeah. outlook. Yeah. Which uh, yeah, we know from our childhood, amazing film. But right. you know, <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> can, can, can they turn? Can they turn on us? Can the robots turn on us? Which you know, it's I, there is a feasible scenario. It, I, I see. Can I just say? But see, I, I think far more important, more, more likely than that, is just mass confusion. No one knows how anything works. Yeah, everyone's pissed off because machines are making decisions based on systems we don't understand. We can't hold them accountable because we don't. Not everyone says someone else is to blame. That to me is more likely a scenario than than Terminator Two. Well, we've got bigger problems in, uh, beforehand potentially, which is the far the the vast loss of middle class and working class jobs. Yeah. Like, how serious is that? Like, so, for example, you know, you went in the self driving lorry, which must yeah. have been a very strange experience. Oh, well, yeah, I loved it. So interesting. But yeah. so, my brother was out in Portland recently. He works in. Uh, management and traffic planning and he went out to there's a whole study on self-driving cars and vehicles which you talked about autonomous vehicles the thing about uh, autonomous lorries a lot of people there are subjects oh it's great because it gets rid of the driver they miss the extra step is that the, it can drive 24 hours a day it's not just that you save the salary mm. it's more productive so and it's going to be essentially safer so there's going to be no logical reason to regulate against it apart from to save in jobs but if you lose, you, you could suddenly lose all those jobs. You suddenly lose taxi drivers. You know, I dread to think pilots without having to get on a plane without a pilot. But you've also got customer service jobs. Like, will will the economy adapt? Mm. Will everyone just yeah. find new jobs? Will we go to a more service based economy or enter? I, I, that I don't know right now. Yeah. That's it. That's the question, though. That's the transition question. Yeah. Rather than thinking a, jo- a jobless society where we're all unemployed, it's more about. Big changes come in. Are we going to be able to adapt to it quickly enough? That's to, to me. I mean, and I would speak to these self-driving truckers and the people who are building the technology, and I'd say, what's a fifty-year-old man who's driven a truck all his life going to do? You know, he's from South Dakota and he's doesn't didn't go to college. And they would always say things like, "Oh, well, they, he should retrain as a machine learning engineer." And it's like, oh, "Come, come on, on, get a grip." It's not going to happen, is it? And so, what's that person going to do? And what that person's going to do, in my opinion is they are going to sabotage the machines because they will not just sit by and watch their profession and their livelihood just disappear. Mm-hmm. What they will be doing is they'll be out on the streets, with they'll work out how the machine learning algorithms work on these trucks and they'll know that they look at the road signs and the, and the street signs and the road markings and they'll get spray paint and they'll mess around with the road signs. So a lorry goes straight over a roundabout without stopping because they've they've change the road markings that will crash that will kill somebody and then regulations will slow it all down again because they'll feel like they've that's their only option so i i think more likely is a in the short term is a sort of wave of luddism as people try to smash these things up and that's what happens when people feel like the economy is changing very quickly and they don't have any options left to them because there aren't the other jobs there aren't the other opportunities and People say, oh, but we had this with the Industrial Revolution and the Luddites and stuff. And it's like, yeah, we did, but they weren't allowed to vote. The police could just smash them and forget about them because they didn't have any economic or political power, really. So how's it going to work when everyone's allowed to vote? I mean, 
So that's the thing. See, this is the thing about the way technologists talk about the future. It's like they forget how irrational and emotional people actually are mm. and how we deal with rapid change. We don't like it. We can't deal with it. And we don't think, oh, that's okay, my grandchild will be safer because the lorries will be safer when we've... They'll be like, fuck that. My job, I'm not just going to stand by and let these Silicon Valley people turn up and destroy my industry. And filter all the money into fewer... And fewer and fewer few people, people who own the software. Yeah. yeah. Who can build bunkers in New Zealand in case yeah. things go wrong. It's just people aren't going to accept it, which is... that's what I suppose that's what worries me in the short term. And there's long-term questions about you know, sentient machines and all of those things. But the short term, it's going to, I think, a sort of a wave of anger about systems we don't understand and disruptive technology ruining our lives. And what's what's the human reaction to that? It's like violence and anger. Yeah, because that's the bit. It's the transition. What's, yeah, how's exactly. It, uh, yeah. You know, and uh, you've got people like Andrew Yang talking about giving people $1,000 a month, uh, you know, which was a... Would you a, take that? Well, did, uh, did, did you, you hear him that? on Rogan? I didn't, no. So what he said was... He said, it's "Universal basic income." Universal basic income. I'm going to give everyone a thousand dollars a month. And Joe Rogan said, "Well, what about the lorry driver who's earning seventy-two thousand dollars a year, which is a good wage for yeah. an uns- you know a relatively unskilled yeah. worker?" And he said, "Well, his starting point. He's got twelve thousand dollars." And in my head, I'm going, "Joe, ask him about the sixty thousand dollar <laughs> gap. You know, he's got two children. So you you see the sabotage. But also, questions of dignity." Like who do you want to just be given money no, by the government? Nobody wants to be given money. Socialism I mean, is a very, very strange. It's era. a question of dignity as yeah. well to me, and it's like, and I had this argument. Well, it was an interview with Sam Altman, the you know the Y Combinator mm. guy in the TV show, the Silicon Valley show. It was kind of odd that interview. Very odd, and 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 I said, and it was to me. I felt, and he was the same argument. Like no, because they'll get a universal basic income when all the jobs have gone, and they'll use it to do more productive things. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, I mean. I obviously don't want people to do crap jobs and I'd love them to do jobs they really enjoy and are meaningful and maybe they spend more time doing other things in society. We weren't born to work. But the reality is it requires you being relying on handouts from other people. Sam Altman won't be happy receiving his money from the government. He'll not. still want to be rich and powerful and important and doing things and working and working 15-hour days. I mean, it's amazing. The people that talk about moving to a four-day week where we work three hours, they all work 18-hour days and mm-hmm. would never change because they get meaning in that, you know? Well, and all the people who seem to be very interested in Universal Baker's basic income and, and running the test. I think, I can't remember the venture capital firm that's also running a test. Is it Peter Thiel or somebody? It might be they're, Y Combinator. But all the people doing these tests are rich people. Yeah. They're all, yeah. they're all millionaires or billionaires trying to implement a version of socialism that, or, or near communism, which they think is the answer to the problems mm. they've created, which I find a little bit distasteful. Yeah. But again, it may, maybe one day it can work. Maybe there's a way of, in this weird future, it's possible. And, you know, it, it sort of relies on some assumptions about dramatic cost of production. So the reason a $12,000 in the future is enough is because everything's more or less free because 3D printers are printing everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's some assumptions built into all of that, but... I still think it does underplay the transition and human reaction to rapid change like that. I think the transition will be slightly different. So I think lorry drivers are great at demonstrating. They've got the vehicles to close down systems and roads and and, and cities. They did it in the UK once over fuel tax, like 
it was 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, they did it. They closed down the motorway. All yeah. you have to do is get four of them side by side <laughs> yeah, on the M1, it. slow them down. But the lorry drivers in France, they closed the fuel depots. So I think, I actually just think it will be mass demonstrations. And yeah. I think what will happen then, it'll be like, okay, so each self-driving lorry will have to have a driver in there for safety to monitor it. And it will just happen in like slower stages. stages. Yeah. And they'll be phased out. But, you know, I... It's the transition I worry about. You know, we seem to be heading to a lot of anarchy globally. You know, we, we've had demonstrations in France. Or, you know, we've just had, uh, is it Lebanon and Chile? And it's, there's like yeah. a rise up now. People, I think, are just saying, look, we've had a fucking enough of this. Yeah, but don't see, so to, to, there's lots of reasons for this, but I, I see one of the underlying ones a bit like you have an enormous change in the way that information is produced and how the economy works. Mm-hmm. And it's living alongside an old world, which is all based on all these different principles and ideas about control and centralism. And and the two things just seem out of sync with each other in lots of different ways. And it's a bit the same, you know, you, you have an old sort of medieval society and then you drop the printing press in the middle of it and it's just like, yeah, the whole thing kind of blows up. Yeah. And it feels like that's what it is. I mean, that's what's happening. It's very hard to piece it together precisely, but roughly speaking, I think that's what's happening. There's a really great book called Engines That Move Markets, and it talks about this, the, the invention of the light bulb and you know, electricity and railroads and how these different key inventions mm. changed. I think the latest version had the internet in there. Mm. My assumption is there's going to be another reprint version that maybe one will have yeah. maybe Bitcoin in and another one maybe will have AI in them. We'll see how it all well, plays I, I, out. Because I studied history. History is always my subject, and... Um, People, when I'm talking about this stuff and they say, oh, but the printing press, you know, it's good, isn't it? In the end, it was good. And the Industrial Revolution, yeah, it's good, good, right? And I'm like, yeah, but look at what happened in the 50 or 100 years afterwards. Mayhem, complete mayhem. Like, yes, good in the long run, of course, but you've got to get there first. And so that's sort of mine. So anytime anyone says, I love it when they do, they say, "Uh, yeah, hello, yeah, excuse me, yeah. Um, One word for you, printing press, yeah? And I'm like, yes, that proves my point, not your point. <laughs> I know what you think you're saying. You think you're saying it all worked out for the best. Well, you didn't live through the Spanish Inquisition, did you? Well, there's a sudden transformation how societies worked. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, that's where... All right, well, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm loath on predictions as well, because once you factor in human irrationality into all of this, you realise things can go in all sorts of different directions. Do you think you're going to... Go back into the subject at all? Do you think is a, is a story done for you now? Are you moving on to other things, or do you think you're going to go back into? I, th- this at all? I think I, I think I'm now more interested. So I'm 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 sick to the back teeth of stories moaning about big tech. Uh-huh. Like I said, I can't read another book which says essentially the same things. Twenty of them have been published now in the last couple of years. I'm not sure what else there is to add. I'm now more interested in sort of thinking about the next ten or twenty years time. What sort of things are we heading towards? Because to take it back to Cambridge Analytica, what was the first election? You, if, we're about the same age, so 1997, right? uh, Tony Blair. Yes. Things can only get better. So my first election was... Would have been, it must have been. Yes, that was, because I was at university. Yeah. I didn't know what to vote. No. My weird thing was, in that election, I, I actually voted Conservatives, and the reason I voted Conservatives... Is One of my, the very few 19-year-olds voting Conservatives well, in 97, I reckon. Very simple rule I had on this. That's who my dad voted for, and yeah. my dad was financing me to go to university. And I was like, Dad, I don't know who to vote for, but whatever's best for you is best for me. And he said, I'm voting Conservative, and he explained why, and I did. And uh, funny enough, my brother voted Labour, and 
there were some mega arguments <laughs> about that shit. So, uh, but there was a mood in 97 that it was obviously, you know, the mood had changed in yeah. the country and it was obviously... Was it better? Really that was better. That, was, that, was, that was our make America great again. It was. I mean, it was. And um, the thing about that election, which my first election as well, so 20 years later, we're now talking about the, the Donald Trump election in 96, yeah. so roughly, sorry, in 2016, so roughly 20 years on. And think about if someone had have said to you in 97, well, in less than 20 years' time, Facebook, you'd be like, what? Yeah, Facebook will be key to the election because it would be collecting data about you and on your phone, which will actually now be a handheld device that you're going to... Sounds like a film. Oh, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. And a company called Cambridge Analytica will have profiled you and be serving up... It would have sounded ludicrous, ludicrous. No one would have believed you. Yeah. So, but 20 years isn't a long time in the history of nations or, you know, I mean, it's mm. a very short period. So I'm thinking, I'm now more interested in thinking, what will we be like in 20 years from now? Okay. So when the first, uh, that person's first election in 2019, when they're our age, what might it be like? And what sort of things do we think about now to help shape how that looks? So I'm thinking more about the sort of medium term, reachable future, mm-hmm. not going to Mars and like super AIs pushing the nuclear button. I just think that's a really long way off. But what are the likely changes that we might see within our sort of, we'll still be well alive yeah, and still well, hopefully so. be causing a few problems for people. Maybe still miserable old men just saying, Doing well, we're right, you went back in my day. Yeah, we didn't have mobile <laughs> phones. We, we arrived on time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, interesting, interesting. So it's more like that. I'm yeah. thinking, so that's the kind of, what does Cambridge Analytica look like in 20 years' time? I find that more interesting than just rerunning what we already know. And I think, you know, I think you and I possibly see that differently because I see the demise of Facebook. Facebook to me is just a telecoms company now. It will be all about phone, communications, yeah. virtual reality. I don't see the platform itself as something that survives. I... I I know a lot of people are moving away from it, and and it's losing its network effect. Actually, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of people dropping off. I, I, yeah, I it's actually, not just that though. It's not just that. It's it's it's, it's what's it going to be like for you living in a smart connected home? Yeah. I, what I, sort I, of things might that might that create for you? You know, your your coffee machine is going to be hacked into. But I think I think stuff. we've I think Facebook and what happened now it might be peak manipulation. I think we're I think we're more aware. We're better at protecting ourselves. I think we're going to be less manipulated because we're spending less time on things like Facebook. I personally think this this election and what happened was peak manipulation, and we can learn from that. And people are more self aware. That's my personal view, and I think mm. we drift away from that. I think the next time it gets really bad is when we have chips on our head, which would get hacked, and <laughs> that's probably the next time it goes really bad. But I, I see that's it for the next show when we're back in twenty years. Yeah, 20 years. Well, listen, look, this was great. Um, I'm going to tell everyone to watch it. Uh, oh, yeah, you can't. You can't. Yeah, is there no way of ever getting out there? Because I think oh, I should I'll try. I, every three months, I go back to the BBC and say, can you please put this back on iPlayer? Because it's still totally relevant. Yeah. But uh, Why don't they just have just, a YouTube know, channel? With, they should just have a YouTube I'll, channel. I'll try. I mean, I mean, but the book I wrote it does cover a lot of the same ground. Okay, well, so. I recommend the book. And, and the thing is about the, the BBC, I assume the iPlayer thing is a data thing, so they just take stuff off because they don't want to keep paying for the data. I think so. But I really, they should just have a bloody YouTube channel so somebody else does because I think it should be out there. It's a shame people won't get to see it. If it does, you let me know and I'll let people know to watch it. I'll recommend the book um, because I think it's really interesting. And look, thanks for doing it. It was great. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, man. 
thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview. And also thank you to Jamie for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, I did another interview with Jamie on my other show, What Bitcoin Did. That covered his recent work on the BBC podcast, The Missing Crypto Queen, and the disappearance of the head of the multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme, OneCoin. It is available on all apps. Just search for What Bitcoin Did. Also, I need to say a big thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show, follow the show on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.